Heavenly Father, this song that we just sang speaks to the glories of You revealed, Lord Jesus. For all who turn to the book of Revelation and step through the door with John as they read, the revelation of our Lord Jesus now exalted and glorified in heaven is one that words fall short of describing. Father, as we studied last week, we see You in the first chapter just with white robes and a golden belt and eyes that shine like fire, Lord, and every bit of your clothing and form radiates the light eternal of the majesty of our God, ruling and reigning, judging, sovereign, loving, holy, pure, resplendent, magnificent, glorified. Father, we turn over some pages. We open up to Revelation 14, and there is our King of Kings, with a cloud as a throne and a sickle in his hand, and in one swing of the blade, he reaps every soul in all of time. And they assemble before the judgment seat of Christ, and those who are chaff are sifted in the winds of your judgment, and those who are wheat of your planting are reaped and gathered. And there they form the multitude that we read of in Revelation 19, with voices joined together that sound like peals of holy thunder, and the rushing sound of many waters joining together to worship with the elders and the creatures encircling your throne, giving honor and glory to our heavenly Father who planned all and to his Son who redeemed those who now stand before him with white raiment, who worship and extol his holy name and who have been prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Father, we thank you that that is the God we serve and that as we read your word, we can see, Lord, that you have power surpassing any trial, any test or any discouragement we go through. And if we can just keep our eyes fixed on the holy future that you have prepared, Father, and purchased with the blood of your Son, it will truly give us grace to endure these few short years in this veil of tears so we can join that throng with voices quickened with eternal power to offer to you the praise that is worthy of your name. In the meantime, Father, we pray that you would be pleased with our feeble attempts. Thank you for blessing and multiplying this worship to you. I pray that you would find this morning's service a suitable throne for your presence and that you would quicken our feeble minds to understand more of yourself as we study your word, God. And we pray that in this sanctification process that we would begin to look more like our Lord and Savior, with each gracious day you give on this earth. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Lord. What a privilege to be with you this morning. Our second message to welcome 2012. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 8, that will be our text this morning. And the title of this morning's message is The Astronomer's Song. The Astronomer's Song. I get this title from this book right here. It's called The Treasury of David. And it's a compilation of others' commentaries and Spurgeon, who is the author's commentary on the Psalms. And it has been an inspirational source for myself. I highly recommend it to accompany your own study of the Psalm. And some of what I say this morning will be drawn directly from that book. And in a few moments, we'll open with a couple of quotes that were inspired by this psalm and that were inspiring to me. As we open this service, however, I'd like to read the preeminent word of the Lord and draw our attention to His glory 
that we see in this psalm written by his servant David. And this again is a song written by David. It's addressed to the choir master. It's meant to be included in a worship service, much like the one we have today. And listen to these words as we read beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The opening and closing, the refrain and the benediction, the intro and the exit to this song of exaltation of the majesty of our God is the same. David is calling attention to the glory of the Lord. He's showing by the things that he chooses to highlight just how majestic the name of the Lord is in all the earth. And he's inspired to do so when he looks at the heavens, the stars, the moon, the things that prove that God's handiwork is available for every open eye and convicted heart to view and to see. I put in a little skylight in the attic of our new house. And last night, Israel and I were laying underneath that skylight, looking up through the hole, and we could see just two stars. But those two stars were enough to captivate our attention and to inspire conversation between my son and I, as we looked at these distant bodies of light, untold mount of miles away, whose light had traveled from their point of inexistence in space to our eyesight to behold by the power of an almighty God who set those spinning orbs in motion by a word of his power from the beginning of time, how much more? the millions and trillions and untold numbers of bodies, planets, stars, galaxies, solar systems, comets, asteroids that fill the expanse of the heavens. When you look up, as we're blessed to be able to do without the city lights in this northern climate here and see on a cool winter night, stars innumerable to our eyes. What do these things speak of? And to whom do they give glory? And what thoughts should they inspire? Psalm chapter 8 answers those questions. This psalm is, illustrates meditations worthy of the creative glory of God. David just few, uses a few examples to highlight the glory God is due as visible in his creation. He uses the heavens, the moon, the stars. And in just these few examples, is if he is worthy of this much praise and majesty, how much more the world around us, the seas, the oceans, the trees, the dawning of the sunset each morning 
of the sunrise each morning, the sun setting each evening. One of the great gifts, again, of living in this region is to sit there at the end of a day of work where we're building on a lake, and before the snow has covered the ice, the sunset begins to drop beneath the trees on the horizon line, and the ice reflects the beauty in the sky in colors that the most creative artists in this world draw inspiration from as the aquamarines, the golds, the silvers, the purples are just unfolded in fluorescent beauty across the expanse of the horizon. And I have never had the privilege of even seeing through a high-powered telescope. I can only imagine the galaxies and the novas and the celestial events beyond what my naked eye can view that must be there to just challenge convict, inspire, and strike awe in the heart, again, of every convicted individual. Sadly, this is not the response that I hear when I read an article from, say, the National Geographic or a published scientific magazine about what the Hubble telescope, for example, has discovered. I wonder why that is the case. Soulmate has answered that question as well. Before we postulate a few answers about what we can learn as to the nature of God and the nature of man in relationship to his creation, I just want to read to you a few quotes, two quotes, from this book I mentioned earlier. In this book, I don't read these quotes because the word of God is insufficient in describing the glory of creation. I read these quotes to tell you, to illustrate what a wealth of inspiration meditation there is in the word of God. In other words, if you sit and look at the night sky, and dwell on what you behold there. And then you turn to Psalm chapter 8, and see and follow the example of David, and what kind of thoughts it should inspire, you might be moved to write or to think something like this. This is Alexander von Humboldt. I see the date here is 1850. He says, But the mere thought that they are so far, speaking of the stars and the galaxies beyond and above everything terrestrial, the feeling that before them everything earthly so utterly vanishes to nothing, that the single man is so infinitely insignificant in the comparison with these worlds strewn over all space, that his destinies, his enjoyments and sacrifices to which he attaches such a minute importance, how all these fade like nothing before such immense objects, then that the constellations bind together all the races of men and all the eras of the earth, that they have beheld all that passes since the beginning of time and will see all that passes until its end? In thoughts like these, I can always truth a spectacle of the highest solemnity when in the stillness of the night, in the heavens quite clear, the stars like a choir of worlds arise and descend while existence, as it were, falls asunder in two separate parts. The one belonging to the earth, grown all its elevations I'm sorry, grown dumb in the utter silence of night, and thereupon the other mounts upward in all its elevation, splendor, and majesty. And when contemplated from this point of view, the starry heavens have truly a moral influence on the mind. He's drawing language here that is in some ways academic and perhaps foreign to the common to our common experience. But what he's saying is that his meditations, this Alexander, when he looks on the sky, fall into two categories. One, humility. How small the earth and he is compared to the expanse of God's creation. And secondly, privilege. 
how amazing it is that he can behold it and the glory and the splendor and the worship that is inspired in his heart as he views all of this. He has a rising sense of worship and a lowering sense of humility as he considers the greatness of God beneath the expanse of the night sky. In a similar spirit, one of my favorite preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is the author of this book, writes concerning creation um, in his commentary on the same psalm. The whole creation is full of his glory and radiant with the excellency of his power. His goodness and his wisdom are manifest at every hand. The countless myriads of of terrestrial beings, from man the head to the creeping worm at foot, all are supported and nourished by the divine bounty. The solid fabric of the universe leans upon his eternal arm. Universally he is present and everywhere is his name excellent. God worketh ever and everywhere. There is no place where God is not. The miracles of his power await us on all sides. Traverse the silent valleys where the rocks enclose you on either side, rising like the battlements of heaven till you can see but a strip of the blue sky far overhead. You may be the only traveler who has passed through that glen. The bird may start up affrightened and the moss may tremble beneath the tread of human foot. But God is there in a thousand wonders, upholding yon rocky barriers, filling the flower cups with their perfume and refreshing the lonely pines with the breath of his mouth. Descend, if you will, into the lowest depths of the ocean where undisturbed the water sleeps and the very sand is motionless in unbroken quiet. But the glory of the Lord is there, revealing its excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Borrow the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the sea. But God is there. Mount to the highest heaven or dive into the deepest hell. And God is both hymned in everlasting song or justified in terrible vengeance. Everywhere and in every place, God dwells and is manifestly at work. Nor on earth alone is Jehovah extolled for his brightness shines forth in the firmament above the earth. His glory exceeds the glory of the starry heavens. Above the region of the stars he hath set fast his everlasting throne and there he dwells in light ineffable. That's just two quotes, just a couple of paragraphs from 20 some pages of commentary on inspired writing just motivated to put down on paper the thoughts that contemplating the glories of creation, the glories of God, I should say, in light of his creation, inspire in the heart of convicted individuals, following the example of David. This psalm illustrates meditations worthy of the creative glory of God. With those two examples, those two quotes I just read to you in mind, and more than that, David's psalm here in chapter 8 of his book of songs, that oftentimes carry this theme of the glory of God visible in the earth and the world and the interaction between himself and his creatures around him. I'll just ask you this question. Have you ever read anything like what we just read, written by today's astronauts? Is it commonplace to read in the newspaper upon a great scientific discovery, a commentary to the Lord's glory similar to what we just read? I know I haven't read that in the headlines of USA Today or Discover Magazine, which my grandma used to say for me to read like it was something important, but never once mentioned God and His glory 
as they were so motivated to share the new discoveries and possibly missing links in the evolutionary chain and whatnot, betraying their whole motivation, their whole agenda for writing that stupid journal in the first place. Have you ever heard men wax eloquent as to the glory of God like this at a Smithsonian exhibit? A museum that's funded by your and my tax dollars to somehow stand as a monolithic example of, you know, what we can learn in creation and history and the like. How about a National Geographic magazine that publishes articles about a new supernova that they found or the possibility of a black hole in a distant galaxy or a whole world as of yet, you know, mysterious to us, but discovered, you know, by the probing reaches of the uh, the probing reaching capabilities, of these new tools that we have, like the Hubble telescope. How about prominent physicists that are writing an assessment of images that are collected, you know, from NASA and all their endeavors and the millions and billions of dollars they spend to search the farthest reaches of this universe? And why is the answer to all these questions, by and large, an emphatic, echoing, resounding no? Why are we so godless when we have these great tools of discovery? And secondly, I ask, how will this nation, if you, if you will, how will this culture be judged with the ability to see further into the reaches of space than man has ever had the privilege to do so before, to retain those images on reams of film, to watch them in video, to search with the great exponential ability to see with lenses and cameras and all of this, And all it does is motivate us to be more resolute against His glory. All it does is motivate our search for our own self-importance to draw attention to the ability of man. What kind of judgment is in store for for mankind with the greatest ability via technology to view the glories of God and a disproportionate sense of worship and awe to the Creator who made everything He is looking at? This is a frightful thought to me. The skeptics say these days that when the ancients, when these primitive cultures looked to the skies, that they were just thinking and imagining that they were formed by the gods. But now in all of the arrogance that modern postmodernity has given us, we look at these same stars and millions and trillions more and think, what, we have made them? Lessons from Psalm chapter 8. The very first lesson that I think Psalm chapter 8 teaches us and really provides clarity to the quandary that the mindset of modern man finds himself in is this. Perception is enslaved to doctrine. In other words, that which we see is held captive to that which we affirm is true. It doesn't matter. You can search the world over with the highest powered microscope or the highest powered telescope And until you believe that God is who the Word of God says He is, you will never, through that discovery, affirm His glory. Perception is enslaved to doctrine. Man is blinded by his premises, by his preconditions. If he is out there looking and expending all his energy to shore up permission for him to live as if there is no God, then he will take and twist, distort and spin and write in a way that every discovery he makes somehow gives him permission to deny God, who is ever more obviously in control and creator over all that science beholds. This psalm asks a rhetorical question in verse 3. 
David writes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you are mindful of him? You could reduce it to what is man? This rhetorical question, when answered, is key to interpreting this psalm and understanding why with the extent of our ability to study the universe, we're as godless as we've ever been. Who is man? Is he the measure of all things? Or is he caught in inerrant sinfulness as the seed of Adam? You answer that question, and then you have the answer to the rest of these puzzling thoughts, why we can look at such glories and not behold the one who is responsible for them. For instance, If our perception is enslaved to this idea that man is the measure of all things, which is generally taught in the worldview of today, if man is the measure of all things, then by our own reasoning, we arrive at truth. If man is the measure of all things, then sociology is queen of the sciences. This is something we've been studying of late. And finally, if man is the measure of all things, then we build telescopes to search for evidence that all is the product of process to shore up philosophical permission to worship ourselves. If man is the measure of all things, then then there is no God above him. There is no intelligence beyond his reasoning. And he just searches to glorify himself. He stares at the heavens to glorify him. He thinks and he works out problems. He postulates ideas. He writes essays and editorials. He organizes think tanks. He you know, assembles for himself counsels. He does all that an earlier psalm says he does. Psalm chapter 5, that is. There is no truth in their mouth, verse 9. Their inmost self is destructive. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. That is the distinction between those who are motivated to pursue knowledge, to give them an excuse to ignore the fear of the Lord, and those that are motivated by the fear of the Lord to pursue knowledge and to pursue wisdom. Those that love the name of the Lord will come to an entirely different conclusion when they, re- when they go through a ream of photos that are taken by the Hubble telescope. It will sound like this. When I look at the heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Man is not the measure of all things. We know who man is when we look to Scripture. He is chief among God's creatures, but he is fallen and in desperate need of redemption, in desperate need of resurrection. His mental capacity, his reasoning is dead in sin. And unless it is resurrected in newness of life with a new beginning point, with a new doctrine, with a new premise, it will search the world over with the sum of his energy and abilities, all all for the motivation of self-worship. We were studying on Wednesday. I, we uh, played a lecture called America's Social Engineers and what they designed. 
And this lecture really documents to the negative the new worldview that are really familiar with and steeped with in our culture and the architects of that worldview. And one of the stated premises of the architects of the new socialist, man-centered, state-as-God worldview was this. Instead of theology being queen of the sciences, now sociology must be queen of the sciences. What does this mean? Well, we will pursue science and knowledge. We will explore the heavens. We will postulate ideas as the origin of life. We will describe biological terms, processes of physics, and all these scientific things in such a way as to manipulate the world that we want to have. We will use the sciences like the ancient Mayan priests did to deceive the people and to control their minds. You hear people say ludicrous things as if they were fact. This universe exploded from nothing. How is that possible? It is not. By the same laws that they described, they arrived at that conclusion. You hear things like, by uh, evolution we came from a single-celled organism. How is that possible? It is not. There cannot be information coming from non-information without a divine designer. Something, some power, some person, some intelligence that supersedes creation, that transcends it to be responsible for that effect. What is the cause? Are we our own cause? No, we are not. And so we see that when man is the measure of all things, his perception is enslaved to sin. And even though we are blessed with the greatest technology and some of the most incredible science, it is wasted. It is by and large totally given to the worship of the enemy and to the shaping of society in the way we want it to be. As I mentioned before, the Mayan priests, they would develop things like mirrors that would attract or that would steer a beam of light from the sun and they would convince the people that uh, on a certain day I'm going to call the gods down so you better do what I say. They would form their pyramids in such a way that the shadows would flit back and forth on a carved image of a serpent and the people would be frightened thinking that this evil spirit was coming down. But the elite of the day were pursuing science as a way to control the populace. They weren't pursuing science as a way to surrender to the control of Almighty God. Who is sovereign? And what ought science be in light of that truth, in light of that fact? We, God is sovereign. And science ought to be the discovery of His fingerprints on creation and His plans for mankind. And when we look at the heavens, we should come to the same conclusion as David. The glory of the Lord is beyond our comprehension. Perception is a slave to doctrine. Now, if man is inherently sinful, if we begin with that premise, then truth, then by truth, our reasoning is redeemed. We must affirm that Jesus is Lord and we are in need of his redemption before our processes of reasoning can be fruitful. Secondly, theology, that is the study of God, who he is, the revelation of himself becomes the queen of the sciences. And this was the mantra of the Christian West for many years. This was the education philosophy. But you'll be hard-pressed to find a public school textbook that would ever utter these things. They would likely be sued if they were to cross the desks of the schools today by the ACLU and other godless institutions that want to eradicate the fear of the Lord from the acquisition of knowledge. They do so 
in rebellion and disobedience to God himself, who says that neither pursuit, the acquisition of knowledge or wisdom is worthy unless we affirm that he is Lord. And finally, beholding the reaches of the universe reveals the audacity of our pride. David says, when I look at the moon and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? When we look at the skies, we should see how small we are in comparison. When we look at the power of God displayed throughout all creation, we should see ourselves humbled in light of that glorious revelation. Point number two, God's nature is vast and intricate. And this idea really shapes, I think, the theme of this entire psalm. God's nature is such that it is sweeping, glorious, and overarching. Yet His nature is such that He is intimately involved with every element of His relationship with you, of your life, and every little thing that makes this world tick. It's unbelievable how God can be both at once. Unbelievable until the Holy Spirit awakens you to the truth of who he is. Another way to say it is God is omnipotent. He's all powerful, yet at the same time, he's intimate. He's omnipotent and intimate. He's transcendent. He's above his creation, yet he's imminent. He's close at hand. He's just a conversation away. If you know him and if you pray and if you trust the redemption of his son's blood to earn for you the fellowship with him and his favor. These ideas shape this psalm. God's nature is vast, unsearchable, and yet it's intricate, it's glorious, and to some degree and growing degree, it can be known. This is a paradox to the human mind. This is beyond the reaches of our understanding, but we affirm through the word of God that it is true. And notice these paradoxes as we move through this psalm. From our perspective, they seem to be incongruent ideas, but when we take them in light of God conveying to himself who he is, we can see that our short-sightedness sells him short, but as we have our minds expanded through the word of God, we can behold more of who he is. In verse 1, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. A God whose glory is set above the heavens, whose this earth is not a suitable throne, or environment to contain the sum of his radiance and power, a God that is so magnificent, how could we even dare approach him without being struck dead in an instant? How could we dare even indulge the thought that we could understand anything of who he is? Yet this same God who set his glory above the heavens, in verse 2 we read, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Notice that God is vast and he's intimate. We can view his glory the same in the cry of a young baby, a brand new infant, or the first word out of the mouth of your toddler. The same as we can when we view his glory at the expanse of the clear night sky. God is vast and he's intricate. It's amazing the extent of his glory that is expounded on in this psalm. When we read in verse 2, it might raise the question, how does God conquer the enemy's kingdom or accomplish his will through babies? How in the world can God 
establish strength, defeat his foes, still the avenger, still the enemy and the avenger through a baby, through a child. The picture here is that the enemy, those who are set opposed to God in his glory, are motivated with a rabid vengeance and rebellion against his very nature. They will spend all their energy and time and money assembling for themselves an arsenal intellectually, powerfully, through weapons, lying to themselves and kingdoms of this earth, the principalities and powers, aligning themselves with the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, all to create a case in their own mind to fight and stand against the glory of the Lord. Do you know the God who set this universe into motion can defeat their plans through the mouth of a baby? How is this possible? Well, there's different ways. I think that we can see this is true. I think in Psalm 8, verse 2, David is highlighting a pattern of how God works. One way this is true is that God's glory, evident in the miracle of life, is enough to confound the wisdom of a, sci- of a scientist whose best attempts can create a fumbling robot. In other words, when we think about the life itself and the very conception of a baby, which, by the way, just happened to my wife and I six weeks ago. We're pregnant again, praise the Lord. But when I think of our situation right now expecting, and God has created in the womb of my wife the seed of life that will grow and produce a baby in nine short months, a little less, and some of you are expecting a baby even sooner, and we have children that surround us every time we look at them with honest observation, We can see a miracle of life that man cannot duplicate and he is confounded. The deeper he explores, the more intricate he examines the nature of life, genetic code and otherwise, the inner workings of a human cell, what he finds in the evidence of God's glory, even in the most formulative elements of life, is an unbelievable, awesome testimony of a designer that he could only hope to emulate and forever fall short of his glory. There is no way that man could ever, in the sum of his abilities, equal even close to what God can accomplish. And the testimony of just one baby is enough to silence the most braggadocious boasts of man who say that they can create and take life on a whim. There's another way that babies can thwart the enemy. And we see this in the faith of a child. In Matthew 21, verse 16 There were voices, children crying out, saying, Hosanna, praise to the king in the temple as Jesus was preaching. It was given to the children to understand who Christ was, where the intellectual elite and the power brokers of the time were blinded to the reality of his Messiah. Whose voice had the last word in the testimony of the gospel? Does anyone read the Pharisees these days? Does anyone hold a copy of the arguments that the Sanhedrin brought against our Lord? And do they hold that on the shelf and refer to it often? Maybe a weird, insane, marginalized two or three in America. But the Bible that is on the shelf of nearly every library in this nation, the most popular book that has ever been printed in all of history records the sound of those children's voices in literary form, exalting the glory of the Messiah. And those children's voices have endured 
while the naysayers are proven fools every generation. Those children had defeated the kingdom of darkness. They were worshiping Hosanna. Worthy is him that was come. They had a simple childlike faith. The voice of the child endured while the voice of the dissenter was silenced. There's another way. I think of David's own experience. Just even in his example and his testimony. Even though he was young, just a child himself, he was watching his father's sheep. But God gave him the ability to defeat a giant, Goliath, when he was still a young man. Before that, God equipped him to kill a lion and to kill a bear. And somehow God gave a child's strength to endure every weapon that the enemy had prepared against the will of God. David held within his loins the seed of the very Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God would not let a bear, he would not let a lion, he would not let a nine-foot or something tall giant or a wicked king destroy his plans. That child grew to be a king, and he wrote this very psalm, likely remembering his experience as a child that out of the mouth of babes and infants, God had established strength because of his foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God talks about the principle of the weak and the base things of this world confounding the wise. And you see in this way, just even childlike faith on principle is something that defeats the enemy. And then finally, probably the greatest example of how a baby can destroy the kingdom of darkness and can advance in spite of the vengeful motives of God's foes, the incarnation itself, Christmas, Jesus himself, born of a virgin, as a baby. And even though Herod tried to stamp him out, even though there were those who hated him, set their face against him, and as he even grew, tried to kill him as a man, this baby that was born in a manger took on the sin of the world and defeated the ultimate enemy, death itself. And we read about this baby revealed now in glory, Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, 14, and chapter 1 in Revelations, as we see him holding the keys of death and Hades in his hand. This was a plan that God initiated through Christ coming to earth as a baby. And out of his mouth, he established strength because of his foes, still the enemy and the avenger. It's amazing how God's nature is vast and intricate. On the one hand, God sets, he, we, look at, at the, we look at the heavens in verse 3, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars, which he has set in place. And then we wonder, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Lord, how is it that it took millions and trillions of stars to give you the glory that you deserve, yet you choose in your glory to show your favor on a single man, myself, unworthy of that favor, yet because of your blood redeemed me, sought me out when I was still a sinner, loved, first loved me before I loved you. How is it that you are mindful of me when your glory is testified to already in the millions of stars and galaxies that are so far above me on this humble earth. God is vast and he is intricate. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, verse 5, and crowned him with glory and honor. God made us lower than the angels in a way, and, he, and right now we have a temporary existence, and our abilities are limited, 
Our understanding is finite. But in light of all of this, is it not amazing that God has crowned us with glory and honor? How is it that God has given you the task to be an ambassador of his gospel? Mark read about it in Ephesians this morning. In spite of these chains, pray that words would be given to me to open my mouth boldly as I ought to speak. How is it that God has entrusted someone who is susceptible to chains and slavery and weakness and fatigue and sin and failing? How is it that God has entrusted fallible man with the testimony of his goodness and put the gospel on his lips? How is it that God is so vast and so glorious, yet he is so gracious and so intimate in his dealings with us? And these are the thoughts that ought to inspire us when we look at the heavens. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. How is it that God has put us in charge? He gave the dominion mandate to Adam. He reiterated that dominion mandate to Noah. We trust that God redeems the dominion mandate. That is, made us delegates, lords over his creation and over the creatures. How is it that God trusts us with all of these things, with the creatures of this earth? You have given me dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under my feet. You can hear just the amazement in David's voice as he sings. Who is this God that would trust his glory to such a lowly creature as I? And the list in 7 and 8 includes sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, and whatever passes under the paths of the sea. To this date, do you know that biologists and marine biologists are categorizing all of the species in the sea? It's something to the tune of 2,000 new species are discovered every year. Every day, there's microorganisms that have never been classified by any scientists that they're writing down and trying to figure out another Latin name, and pretty soon they're going to run out of permutations to describe the totality of God's creatures. We have no idea if we even know half of what he's made. And the classification systems are likely now better than they've ever been. But it seems there may not be books enough to contain all of the creatures from minute to the glorious that cover this world over, let alone to categorize all the stars. How is it with all of these creatures that God has entrusted us to be in charge of them when we can't even memorize a hundred uh, if you're me, or you can't even classify a million if you're the best scientist out there. It's unbelievable that God is so vast, yet so gracious. Point number three in this message and in closing, understanding and salvation stem from divine condescension. This word condescension is a theological term. Maybe I've introducing it to you for the first time, but it's very important. It means simply this, not the negative connotations of a condescending tone, like speaking down to somebody, but instead it's this. It's an infinite, omnipotent, transcendent God has communicated who he is to you and I, a fallible, fallen, finite creature. How is it that God has condescended? He has stooped beneath the realm of his glory as we see just a sliver contained in the heavens to speak to your heart. Just a seed of faith that grows and produces fruit. This is who I am. This is how I've redeemed you. And just that one thought alone is enough to purchase 
your soul, this God, who it cannot be contained by all the universe in his glory, has taken refuge in your heart, in your soul. He finds you a suitable temple for his glory when the world cannot contain him. This is condescension. This is the undescribable attribute of our God that ought to stun and amaze and inspire the poetry and art of our generation. This ought to be the inspiration of movie scripts and plot lines and novels and songs. This ought to reorder the sciences and put theology as the queen of them, but not just them, the arts also. This ought to control our conversations, inspire our desires, and influence our thinking and drive our intellectual debates. You see, we have a lot of room for growth. You see how our culture has prostituted its passions to the things that are passing and fleeting and debased and carnal. Do you see that in him we have an inexhaustible source of inspiration if the Holy Spirit would just move our desires from the base and fleeting to the ethereal and transcendent? This is the message of Psalm chapter 8. Understanding requires this condescension, this God speaking directly to our hearts. Salvation requires this, but also I would encourage you to embrace the thought that God is glorified in the aspect that he can speak to your heart even though he is so far beyond all of his creation. And this is enough meditation for us to be inspired to write like the men I read to you from in this book this morning to follow in the mental footsteps of David, to sing and to write songs in the night hour, to dream dreams accordingly, to put our passions to work, to explore the depths and reaches of his glory. Final point I'd like to make is how God's condescension influences even the interpretation of this psalm. So far, we've largely taken this psalm as it appears to be written David amazed at what God had given him privilege to be a part of in light of who he was. But there's an added step of inspiration, of understanding and interpretation that we read of in Hebrews chapter 2, where this psalm is quoted. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Dominion aspects of this psalm would not be so compelling if it did not anticipate the reality of those dominion aspects redeemed through Christ, the perfect man. Another way to say it, you read the psalm and you wonder, how is it that all things are in subjection under our feet? And even in Hebrews, it says we don't see things from our perspective in that way just yet. I'll tell you how it is. There was a man 
who was born of a virgin, who declared victory over the last enemy. Out of the mouth of that baby, God had perfected praise to the degree that every foe, enemy, and avenger was vanquished. This man took on the sin of the world, received the punishment that all that sin was due, and was resurrected by the power of God. God crowned him with glory and honor, elevated and glorified him upon his resurrection and ascension, and seated him at the right hand of God. This man, Jesus Christ, also God, now rules the universe by the same word of his power, by the same power of his hand. In him, all things are held together. In him, all things consist. This man, for every one who puts his trust in him, has purchased a place at his right hand to rule and reign with him forever and ever. You and I have this to look forward to. Dominion in this realm is limited, finite, and fallen. But one day, through our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I will receive that same resurrection power. And when we enter into glory, we will find ourselves as judge of the whole universe, next to our conquering Lord and King, a baby born in a manger, now exalted and worshipped in ineffable glory, as Spurgeon says his creation speaks of. And there we will be ruling and reigning with him, joining that triumphal parade as we follow his conquering white steed in the book of Revelation, as he meters out justice for those who never trusted in him, and as he meters out the grace of eternal life to those who are drenched in his blood. Let's close in prayer. Father, we see in this psalm the anticipation of what Revelation speaks of at greater degree. Lord, as we read your word, Over and over, we see the intricacy, the depths, the beauty, the details, Lord. They're worth exploring and searching out as your word describes the way men seek out treasure, gold and silver. Lord, we will expend energy. We will go and risk our lives. We will take pickaxe and shovel. We will take GPS and a burrowing shovel to dig beneath the ore. We will split it with dynamite to find that infinitesimal grain of ore that lies beneath a mountain that's nothing but gold, which will eventually perish. How much more your people ought to be motivated to seek out the glories of our God, visible through creation generally, visible through your word specifically. I pray that you would quicken within us, Lord, as we read your word and lay our souls bare before the light that it is, and the lamp it ought to be to our feet, I pray that you would bring us to a convicting notion that would leave the sins of distraction behind and put before us the glorious endeavor of seeking you as treasure and finding you by your grace alone. Lord, I pray that this year, 2012, would be marked by a church that is increasingly motivated by the pleasures of our God, by the glories therein therein contained, Lord by the glorious hope of discovery that your Holy Spirit will equip us with, Father, to add to our knowledge, Lord Jesus, more reasons to come to this worship service and the next one and the next one with as many years as you graciously give to offer before your throne glory do your name. Lord, equip us to do just this. Lord, and if there's anyone here that fellowships among us, God, that does not know you yet, that has not come to grips with you as Messiah, as judge and king, as redeemer and savior. I pray, Lord, that their heart would be bowed before the revelation of you, whether they look at the night sky or into the depths of your word, that they would find themselves humbled before the lordship of Jesus Christ 
and therein find their redemption. In Jesus' name we pray.